During our last two sabbaticals, Sham and I had the opportunity sometimes to take a nice walk along the Pacific Ocean in a very expensive restaurant, uh, resort called La Montage. Fortunately, it only cost three bucks an hour to park there, which is why we could go. And one evening, there was a, people were setting up for a wedding. So we just asked them, how much does it cost to have a wedding in this place? Oh, they said, just the rental alone costs $150,000. So we had some interesting conversation figuring out what the total cost of the wedding would be. The average cost of wedding in North America is about $28,000. $77,000 in Manhattan, 44000 in Santa Barbara. Now, for most of us who don't live in those dizzy heights of affluence, it's still an issue. When I do pre-engagement or premarital counseling, one of the things that a couple have to fill out are the top 10 stressors in their life. And most of the time, the cost of the wedding shows up on one or both sides of the equation. Now, with that as a background, let me ask you another question. What do you think they fight about the most after they get married? Yeah, 2012 National Telephone Survey showed that couples fight about one issue more than anything else, finances. On average, at least three times per month. And in 60% of those cases, the arguments are about the difference between needs and wants. And you know why that is so? Because what the husband thinks is a need, the wife clearly sees as a want. What the wife thinks is a need, the husband knows is a want. And so they fight all the time. So we confuse one massive want, which is a lavish wedding for a need, and we continue fighting about that difference between needs and wants for the rest of our life. This is only possible in an affluent society. Most of the world doesn't have the luxury to fight over this thing. Because there's nothing left over for, for wants. This is one face of the illusion of affluence that I want to look at today. But this, uh, this illusion operates a little bit differently than what we talked about last week in the illusion of innocence. Because the illusion of innocence is actually a real illusion. When we think we are in, innocent, we're not. And so we are deluded. But the illusion of affluence is not an illusion in that way. When we think we are affluent, we are. So the illusion actually operates in that it is what the affluence promises to give us. Somehow seducing us to believe that True life, abundant life, essential life, satisfying life is somehow related to the acquisition of things and experiences that money can buy for us. In fact, exactly the opposite is true. You can start taking notes in the first block of your notes if you want to. Affluence often, not always, diminishes rather than enhances life. For example, it tends to make people more selfish. Both south of the border and here, Stats Canada continue to affirm to us one fact that people in the higher income brackets tend to give a smaller percentage of their income. People in the top 20% in North America give only 1.3% of their income. People in the bottom 20% give 3.5% of their income. In the New Testament, the issue is not amount. It's always proportional giving. And Paul Piff, who's a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, published research that correlated wealth with an increase in unethical behavior. While having money doesn't necessarily make anybody anything, the rich are way more likely to prioritize their own self-interest above the interests of other people. So that's one way in which affluence can diminish life. Secondly is the issue of self-deception. Researcher Daniel Ariel in a book called Predictable Irrationality talked about how we are masters at deceiving ourselves in order to justify our actions. And how we so often make choices not on the basis of what is right, but what we think we need. He talked about how at the age of 30, he decided to finally give up motorcycles and buy a car. 
And so he found this amazing little tool on the internet, you know, where you can answer all the questions and it tells you what you should be buying at the end. We've all looked at things like that. Pastor Wayne sent me something recently to check how long, how old I was going to live. I was terrified to realize I was going to be 97 when I died. You know? <laughs> Anyway, so he, he went through all of this thing and he came out at the other end with the fact that he should be buying a Ford Taurus. That's not what he wanted to drive. So he kept backing up and re-answering the questions until he got a Mazda Miata as the answer to the question. This is the capacity for self-deception that we have. This is what the advertising industry plays upon. Uh, Christopher Lash, many years ago, social critic, I think in a book called The Culture of Narcissism, wrote this. In a simpler time, advertising merely called attention to the product and extolled its advantages. Now it manufactures a product of its own. The consumer is perpetually unsatisfied, restless, anxious, and bored. Advertising serves not so much to advertise products as to promote consumption as a way of life. It educates the masses into an unappeasable appetite not only for goods, but for new experiences and personal fulfillment. It upholds consumption as the answer to the age-old discontent of loneliness, sickness, weariness, and lack of sexual satisfaction. At the same time, it creates new forms of discontent peculiar to the modern age. It plays seductively on the malaise of industrial civilization. See, we all know, and I'm pointing this out here in other settings, we all know that the actual process of Saving for something, researching about that, anticipating getting it is exciting all the time. That's why we do it all the time. And yet after we have acquired whatever it is or been to the place that we want to be, its capacity to satisfy diminishes very rapidly. And manufacture of certain products play upon this. They build in something called obsolescence. So even while they are designing a product, they already know that they're going to be building something different very shortly. And having persuaded us to buy something that we, in many cases, don't need, it now proceeds to make us unsatisfied with what we've just bought, so we'll buy the next thing. The, the interesting thing about the self-deception is that we know this. We know this is true, and yet what do we say? It won't be the same the next time. My next camera will satisfy me for 15 years, not 3 years. My next car will satisfy me for 25 years, not 3 and so on and on it goes. And we know it isn't true. This is a self-deception that this affluence affects us with. And then thirdly, this... Uh, sorry, let me back up a bit. It just kind of spills over into deceiving other people. 30% of adults who are married have engaged in at least one deceitful behavior related to their finances, such as hiding purchases. 15% of married people or couples with joint finances have a bank account they keep hidden from their partner. And then lastly, broken relationships. On our last sabbatical, we had some friends who lived in Newport Beach area, and so in a little battery-operated motorboat, they took us on a little cruise around uh, Newport Bay. And we saw all these massive houses of, of, the, of the rich and famous Maybe Sanj lived in one of them, I don't know. <laughs> and one, one was this one huge, huge house uh, was the fortune of the legacy of the owner of the company that made those Gillette shaving blades. Yeah. And he had given it to his two sons. But these two sons got into a fight with each other. And so they literally cut that house in half. And then the guy who lived in the half closer to the ocean built out a 17-foot addition so this brother couldn't enjoy the ocean view. Now, it's not just people who make money at that level where relationships are broken because of finances. 
We get resentful over bosses that will not give us the raise that we think we need. Relational barriers spring up between us and a colleague who gets the promotion that we should have got. We get jealous of a friend who buys a better house than we are able to. This kind of thing happens all the time. And so these are four ways in which affluence, not always, but has the potential to diminish life. And listen, it's not just the rich or the mega rich who have this problem. The poor do too. It's just they don't have the money, but they still want these things. This is why another very interesting survey showed, they asked people who made $20,000 a year, all the way to people who make $200,000 a year, how much money do you need to be truly happy? Everybody mentioned a number exactly twice what they were making at this point. This is how the illusion works in our lives. The illusion is completely comprehensive. No wonder Jesus, who spoke mostly to poor people, spoke an awful lot about the subject. He wouldn't need to if it was only a peculiar problem of the rich. This is comprehensive for all of us. And Jesus punctured this illusion. So I want to just now let's move into one particular portion of scripture that where his, his one-liner specifically addresses this subject. Luke chapter 12 verse 13. Someone in the crowd listening to Jesus said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. A little bit of background there. Most likely the father had died and left his estate or inheritance. And according to the custom of those days, it was the older brothers uh, taking his double portion of that inheritance and dividing up the inheritance. So it's quite likely that this request came from a younger brother whose older brother was not doing what he was supposed to do. It was a request from Jesus to justice to happen. This was a just thing. He wasn't asking for something that wasn't his. Very much like you and I might go to Jesus and pray about some injustice being righted and us getting what we what rightfully do for us. So what's wrong with that? Well, Jesus' response, though, suggested that there might be something wrong with that. Because he, he said something that neither one was expecting. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge, an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. There he punctures the illusion right away. Now, neither Jesus nor the Bible denies the fact that we need food, shelter, and clothing for biological life. He was talking about something more than that. The Greek language has two words for life, bios and zoe. Bios, we get words like biology, and zoe gives us words like zoology. It's probably not a rigorous distinction between the two of them, but the, at least the dictionaries tell me that generally speaking, the New Testament elevates zoe or essential life over just mere bios. So while things are necessary up to a certain point for biological life, essential life, life to the fullest, doesn't consist of the things that we merely accumulate in our lives. And so to drive this home, Jesus then tells them one of his famous stories that we call parables. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many, many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? few things to observe. First of all, this man was already rich before he got the bumper crop. That's what the text says. It wasn't the crops that made him rich. He was already rich. The crops were a total gift from God. 
He should have known that because even a wealthy man, a skilled farmer, has no control over the outcome because so many things and a harvest depend upon factors outside his control. But he was not aware of the fact that it was a gift from God. Notice the references to my crops, my barns, my good, my soul. Everything was his mind. It all belongs to me. He was completely unaware of the fact that this was a gift. Also notice there is no mention of his workers at all. It's highly unlikely he did all the plowing and the sowing and the farming. Somebody else did it all for him. And there wasn't even a thought that maybe they could get some of the results of this overabundance. The conclusion that he only consulted with himself. That's another interesting thing. Culturally in that time, people made decisions communally. This guy talked to nobody about what to do with this windfall. He made his decision on himself and his decision was, oh, I'm just going to tear down my barns, I'm going to build bigger barns, and now I can stop working and I can kick my heels back and I can retire and just eat, drink and be merry. That was his thought process. And God said, you're a fool. That was not a comment upon this man's intellectual abilities. Obviously he was skilled enough to run a very successful agricultural business. He already was rich. Now he was a fool in that he was completely wrong. He made a fundamental radical mistake in judging what made for life and what didn't. And one specific dimension of that was he completely forgot that not only was the bumper crop a gift from God, this soul that he thought was his life itself was a gift from God and it could be taken back anytime he wanted. And God said, that's happening tonight. So what's going to happen to all your barns? You don't even know who's going to use them. That's the story. And Jesus applies it in this way. He said, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now what does it mean to be rich towards God? God doesn't need money. We don't have to give money to God like you give the poor. He doesn't need food, shelter and clothing. In one of the Psalms he says, The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't come to you. One of the, Probably one of the most ironical statements in the whole Bible. So what does it mean to be rich towards God? Well, Jesus said to his disciples, it goes on, whether he said it to them right then or he said it later on, I don't know, but this is what he said. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, I think he's defining for us what to be rich before God means. Because the text follows after that. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fall, does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. To be rich towards God has to do with the issue of what really makes us secure and free from anxiety and worry. Someone very wisely observed that true security comes from being connected to something that is really secure and unshakable. In this case, it is God himself. Now, just like we need food, shelter and clothing to live now, it is also true that we do need to make provisions for the future. Because especially in this society, we're living longer and longer. And most of us, many of us, will live well past our earning potential for most of us. So making some reasonable provision for the future, and I'm going to come back in a minute to what's reasonable and how you think about things like that, 
is perfectly okay. The danger that goes along with it is that we begin to trust in it instead of God. That's why he called it, don't put your trust in uncertain riches. So we can be successful in building the big barns, or we may be unsuccessful in building the bigger barns, and in both cases we are still worried and anxious, because we don't know what's going to happen to those things. Everything in life is so uncertain. The only way, the only way we can be truly secure when it comes to such things, and to a progressively increasing measure, experience freedom from anxiety and worry, is to be connected to the only person who ultimately can provide us. God as the ultimate provider, divine providence as the sole source of our hope that we will be taken care of is what will make for security in these times. So that's one dimension of being rich towards God. The second dimension, of course, is the horizontal one, and he said, give to the poor. So here's my one-liner for today. According to Jesus, it is relationships, not riches, that make for life with a capital L. So can you say that with me? relationships, not riches, make for life with a capital L. One more time. Relationship, not riches, makes for life with a capital L. So I'd like to amplify these two dimensions. Now the primary focus in this parable, the way Jesus applies it, is the vertical relationship of being rich towards God. And then we'll conclude with the horizontal one. First of all, it starts the same place where we started last week. Repentance, which means a change of mind. For some of you who are not yet followers of Jesus... The testimony you heard from Sanj is a perfect illustration of what he had to go back. Repentance was a complete change of mind and going back to Jesus and asking for forgiveness to be cleansed. Last week, we amplified on that because we spoke on the fundamental illusion of, of innocence. That we're not innocent until proven guilty, according to the legal system we are, but we are guilty until pronounced righteous by a holy God. And that happens through faith in Jesus. And you saw how it works out in an actual life today. I also mentioned to you last week that one sermon or two sermons or a series may not be enough to explore all the issues for you, just like he needed that Afro-American gentleman to help him through that process. We want to help you through. And so the middle of this series, October 29th, on the Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock, we'll be having a seven-week series where you will have an opportunity every week after refreshments to be able to listen to an engaging video presentation on many dimensions of what it means to relate to Jesus and then have an opportunity to talk to one another in small group settings. And Pastor Sam will be coordinating that, so we'd love for you to sign up if you're interested for that. For the rest of us, who are most of us who are Christ followers, just like I said last week, repentance needs to become a, a way of life, a lifestyle. So it is in this case. This illusion is so powerful all around us, not least because of the relentless attacks of the me, of, um, seductions of the media to buy, buy, buy. They make encroachments upon our heart. And so we need self-examination of where our hearts is. We need to be much more ruthless in examining before God the issue of needs versus wants. And we need to take that to Jesus. And whenever we see that we are beginning to trust in something else, whether it's anxiety, whether it's worry about the future, whether it's looking to money to provide significance, security, whatever, power, influence, that only God promises to provide. Whenever he shows that in us, we need to acknowledge that as idolatry and we need to ask him for forgiveness once again. It doesn't get broken once. It's a constant battle. It's a peculiar challenge of living in an affluent society. So that's first. Secondly, we need to build upon that. Remember we said security comes from this connection with someone. 
who is truly secure. Worship that seeks to magnify and treasure Jesus. And Solomon drew attention to that in the morning. He was worried and anxious about exams and future and stuff like that. But the same thing is true here. You see, money is a commodity we exchange for what we really value. If you really value education, you'll pay for courses. You will get to the best schools that you possibly can. My father invested a lot of money in sending me to a place like MIT. If you value experiences, you will spend money on vacations to faraway places and photography treks and all kinds of things like that. Whatever we value, we exchange money to get that. Money by itself doesn't do anything. You value fast cars, you'll buy a Porsche. If you value Jesus, you're going to invest your money in getting as much of Jesus as you can and helping other people to see and get as much of Jesus as you can. And that's why worship that seeks to magnify Jesus is so crucial. Just in my reading this morning, coming in here, Colossians chapter 1, that he in all things, Jesus might have the preeminence, the head over all things for the church. And Paul said, of this gospel I have been made a minister. Man, my tears were flowing. That's what he said, I've called you to do. To present every man and woman perfect in Jesus Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy that works with me. And so I begged God again to magnify Jesus in my life. Which takes us to the next thing. We need prayer for the revelation of that word. This doesn't happen automatically. Worship does when we use those songs like incomparable, indescribable, all-powerful. We are amazed. We, well, why are we repeating those? You might say, I already got it the first time. You don't get it the first time. I don't get it the first time. I have to sing it three, four, five, six times if we're paying attention. And then when it comes to the end, it's saying, you are this unfathomable God and you love me the same. That's when it becomes worship. So we need to pray. We need to pray. And I told you that if you can't sing songs because your honest experience is not there, it's okay. Sing them as prayers to God that it might become like that. You go hard after God. That's why you come to church on Sunday mornings. You come to follow Jesus and go hard after God together with other people who can help you in that process. If you're here for anything else, you miss the point. You are here to go as hard after God as you can. However imperfectly. And then finally... Invest in the spread of the kingdom. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. To be rich towards God, to enjoy life with a capital L, we need to be engaged in something that is bigger than ourselves and something that outlasts us. And the kingdom of Jesus is the only thing that qualifies. I mean, we get, we get glimpses that Dorothy Sayers is a brilliant novelist, um, also a Christian thinker, talked once about how second, during the Second World War she saw many ordinary Britishers who engaged in the war effort, even though they didn't have much, content and happier than she'd seen them in peacetime, because they were not working for their own benefit, but for the benefit of somebody else, for a cause that was bigger than themselves. Listen, some of you have abilities to do well in the business world. Notice in that parable, Jesus never condemned the man for being rich. He didn't call him a fool for being rich. He did not call him a fool for having a huge harvest. He didn't even call him a fool for having building bigger barns. His only question was, who are you doing it for? Some of you have the gifts and the abilities to make lots of money. Go ahead and make it. 
And you might need bigger burns. You might need to expand your businesses. Do it. But always ask yourself, whose talents am I multiplying and for what cause am I multiplying them? That's the critical issue. Now, this is where I want to comment on this issue about uh, how do you think about this provision for the future. When we start thinking about barns, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die is Epicurean philosophy. That's definitely not biblical. But as I said, there's on the other hand, there's a very definite requirement to make reasonable provision for the future. How do you think about things like that? And of course, at the age of 69, I'm kind of thinking about that a little bit more than I used to when I was 40. Uh, as in so many of these kind of difficult choices, John Piper's insights have helped me the most. And let me just quote this paragraph for you. It's very helpful. He said, the way I think about retirement, though I don't believe in retirement if you can avoid it, is that you should start doing different things for Jesus. And if you can do them without having to be paid by people because you've set it aside, then that's all the more wonderful. I don't want to get rich. I don't want to sit on a pile of money. I just want to be able to survive between the ages of 65 and 85 and I'd like to be spent for the kingdom. So if I can have a house and have my bills paid and pour my life out for the kingdom, I would be thrilled. Make as much as you can. Give as much as you can. And I love this sentence. Save what you need in order to be a responsible non-borrower. Then do retirement with some minimalistic plan that frees you up for the gospel ministry till the day you drop dead. I just recommend that to you. I'm trying my best to live this out as much as I can. You'll have to watch over the next few years to see whether I do it properly or not. So this is the dimension of being rich towards God. Very quick, and this is where Jesus put the focus. Very quickly, he did touch on the other side. He said, give to the poor. That's the horizontal side of it. Life with a capital L requires us to be rich in relationships, not only vertically but horizontally. Go back to the parable, for, to the story for a minute, not the parable. What if that younger brother, still wanting justice, had said something like this? What if he had said this? Rabbi Jesus, my brother and I are quarreling. There is a danger lest our fight create a permanent break in our relationship, and I am concerned. Would you listen to me and to him and reconcile us? I beg you, please bring us together. What if he had prayed that way? Don't you think Jesus' response would have been completely different? Because this is what Jesus came for. He came to make peace between us. That's why the immediate, one of the immediate consequences of Sanj coming to Jesus was the relationship reconciliation between him and his wife. And what he didn't tell you in the testimony was that after his mother became a Christian, she ran to her brother from whom she had been isolated for I don't know how long. Asked for his forgiveness. He said, I have my sister back. And he was told it was because of Jesus. And he said, I want this Jesus. That's what Jesus came for, to make reconciliation. What if this man had responded to the question in this way? So we need to focus on those relationships, on the horizontal side, to be rich. And yes, literally it means to give to those who lack. St. Augustine put it this way, talking about this parable. He said, this rich man did not know that the bellies of the poor are much better storehouses and barns than his big ones were. Well, it's more than just giving to the poor. It's more than just giving, as a matter of fact. It's about using as well. Because the world's philosophy is use people to get things. The worst examples of that are the sex slave trade, the sweatshops that these companies do, the guys over in Bangladesh who run all these sweatshops where the buildings are dilapidated. They don't care if people die so long as they get their money. That's the worst example of using things, using people to get things. But don't be so quick to judge them that you and I are impervious to that. In some small, subtle ways, if I can look into my heart, I also can have the tendency to use people to advance my own agendas. 
Jesus says, do the opposite. Use things to love and serve people. So here's a question for you. Of all the things that you have, whether in terms of money or other kinds of resources, I want to ask you, I want you to ask yourself one question. What one thing can I use that I'm not using right now with the specific purpose of loving somebody else with it? If God shows it to you, start doing it. And you begin to start living life with a capital L. That's what Jesus said. By the way, lending is, sharing is another important part of it. We don't have to give away everything so long as we hold it loosely. Another one-liner that I picked up many years ago, if it is too expensive to share, it's probably too expensive to own. This doesn't mean that you are irresponsible. You don't share expensive things with people who don't know how to handle them. But apart from that, hold them loosely. I'll tell you this much. You make a commitment, God will test you very quickly. We made that commitment with our cars. For some part of our ministry here, we actually had two cars. We didn't need it. Then, then we realized we don't really need two, so we only have one. But we made that. It was just amazing. There was one occasion when I had to replace a car and... Um, my youngest brother-in-law was getting rid of a car that he'd had for many years. It was a, one of these expensive cars with bells and whistles that I would never buy, but he gave it to me for a very modest amount of money, so I bought it. And while it was still in the point of being delivered from his house to mine, a young uh, music student who happened to be worshipping in this church called me up and said, Sundar, I need a car for such and such a day. So he got to drive it before I even drove it. God will test you, but it's a joyful way to live. So use what you have, share what you have, use the things you have to love people. And then one last thing, I call it choose to lose, because it's in the context of this parable. The younger brother had one other option, you know. He could have just let it go completely. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says this. He said, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's called choosing to lose. I'm not saying this is always the right thing to do. There are times when we need to appropriately get what is ours. Although, according to Jesus, we still have to look at our heart. But there is a choice at times to let it go for the sake of the relationship. There were three occasions in our life that Sham and I have had to do that. By the grace of God, we chose to choose to lose. Now, there weren't massive amounts of money or anything. But we did it because we did not want to lose the relationship. And to this day, 40 years later, we're happily in relationship with those people. And they still don't know to this day. But sometimes it's possible. You see, it's all thinking about this in the context of relationships. Now, there's much more about this horizontal side, and we'll talk about it when we come to the illusion of independence. We're going to talk about interdependence as a solution to the illusion of independence. But for now, this is all I want you to remember. To dispel the illusion of affluence, what do we need to remember? Relationships, not riches, make for life with a capital L. One more time, please. Relationships, not riches, make for life with a capital L. And one more time, relationships, not riches, make for life with a capital L. As the worship team comes right now to get us together, I'm going to invite those of you who are going to be sharing and distributing the elements of the Lord's Supper.
such an appropriate way to, to draw a message on relationships to a close. Because he came to make peace. It was through the cross that the dividing wall of hostility was broken. And money and affluence is so often the cause of so many divisions. So I want you to prepare your hearts to participate in the Lord's Supper today in the light of what you've learned today that riches, not relation, relationships, not riches makes for life with a capital L. You want to puncture the illusion of, of affluence. Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Some of you may not know who I am. It's a funny kind of name for God, right? It actually comes from a story in the part in the Old Testament where God was sending Moses to deliver his people. And Moses said, if they ask me who sent me, what should I say? In other words, who are you that sent me? And they, he said, tell them, I am has sent you. It's an incredible name for God. In fact, when Jesus claimed that name for himself, they stoned him. Because the Jews understood what that name meant. It's a present tense name. What does it say to us? It says that God is outside of time. He has no past. He has no future. Everything is the immediate present and eternal now before God. And so my blessing for you is that you will be so connected to this great I am that your known past will terrify you no more and your unknown future will terrify you no more and you will be totally freed in the present to love and to serve. Go in Jesus' name.